0: Was there ever a time in your life that uh, maybe not you necessarily, but the people around you were big into arm wrestling? And I don't know if it was when you were coming of age or, you know, starting to become a man, especially for the males here in the room. But arm, I don't know too many ladies that arm wrestle, but arm wrestling became a thing because it showed, are you stronger than the other person? You're the man, they're still the boy, that whole idea. And so I can remember a time when arm wrestling was a thing, and I was never uh, big for my age. Uh, I never experienced a growth spurt. I'm still waiting for one. We just, as rights, we just gradually, you know, like an eighth of an inch every year, do a thing. Um, but uh, it's always a scary thing to get involved in an arm wrestling match. Because people gather around and people start cheering and all the rest. Well, the story is told at a high school, there was this one individual who was the it guy on campus. He was the all-star basketball player, but it really didn't matter what sport it was. He was good at them all, and he was, he was fit, and he was taller, he was muscular. And so he just had a lot of confidence. Perhaps we could say he had way too much confidence And so it happened one day while he was in shop class, there was another young man who was handicapped and actually was mentally challenged, if you will, and so he got teased a lot. He wasn't a small guy. He had decent size on him, but uh, he talked kind of funny and how he walked around was kind of funny, and so he got teased. Well, in his shop class on this particular day, they were both needing the same tool at the same time. How do mature Grown men handle this issue? Arm wrestling. You got it. And so he challenged this mentally uh, challenged young man. He says, let's arm wrestle, and whoever wins in the arm wrestle gets the tool. And then of course, you know, everybody piles up, yeah, 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 let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And so sure enough, they get all set up. They find a table. All right, you're on. And they lock hands. And this kid is, is looking at this guy in the face. And okay, I got it, I got it. On your mark, get set, go. Well, the, the basketball all-star, he's really trying. He just wants to just smoke him, just pow. But he can't. And he's gritting his teeth. And he's grabbing the table. He's doing everything he's trying to do. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, okay, wait, wait, wait. people are yelling. And after about 15 seconds, it's in a dead heat. And the mentally challenged young man, he's actually looking pretty cool. <laughs> he's looking across the table at him. And there's this exchange as they are locking you know, eyes and making eye contact and, and you can tell, everybody who's watching can tell, there's one person in the arm wrestling match that all of a sudden becomes very afraid and one person that seems to very much be in control. And then as he looks at him, it's almost as if he says, he doesn't say it out loud, but it's almost like he says, okay, I'm gonna do it now. And he starts going, and the basketball all starts, and people start in cheer, whoa, whoa, go, 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 go. Pow, and everybody, yeah, the underdog takes the day. And then he did something else that was kind of cool. He said, Oh, and you can have the tool. (laughs) (laughs) Confidence. You know, it's a good thing to be confident, but does it matter what we're confident in or perhaps who we're confident in? We've been looking in this three-part series, we're on number two that I'm calling now converted, Lessons from the Life of Peter. And we don't know Peter well enough. We know that he is pretty confident. But what is he confident in? Who is he confident in? And does this confidence actually work against him rather than for him? And so this is... Part of what he wrote later, and this is a little bit of a review of last week, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus concerned about? The genuineness of our faith. And how do we know if our faith is genuine? Well, it comes through challenges. And we talked about that last week, and we don't always like challenges, but the challenges reveal oftentimes our character and who we are. And so we looked at, last week, Peter's call by the sea. We spent a little time talking about the amazing catch that really got his attention. We talked about various healings that Peter witnessed, Uh, also how Jesus cast out demons. I mean, he saw repeatedly over and over and over the power of Jesus Christ as he followed him, even raising a girl back to life, one of the few allowed inside to witness this spectacular miracle. And I believe it's all with a purpose that Jesus is not only seeking to save the lost, he's seeking to save the twelve. He's trying to bring them to a deeper level of faith, a deeper experience, and to show, yes, their weaknesses. Talked about how he sent them out two by two, how they themselves healed and cast out demons. I mean, this would be incredible. The healing of the 5,000, they got to witness all of that, to be part of that. Who is able to do all these things? It must be God, the Son of God. And then last time we ended with Peter walking on the water. Can you imagine having that experience? I'm not sure if something's loose or not. But Peter is walking on water, and then it comes to that critical moment when his fears are greater than his faith. And he starts looking at the circumstances instead of Jesus. Yes, he had confidence to get out of the boat, but his confidence is really more in himself than in Jesus. But then we see this compassionate redeemer pulling him up. Oh, Peter, why did you doubt? You see, Jesus is trying to prepare Peter for a final test that he's not ready for. Any teachers in the room? Do you know when your class is not ready for the test? Mhm. But maybe they're not taking it seriously. Maybe you're trying over and over and over, but somehow they think they have it. They know it. And so sometimes you have to say, "All right, here you go." And let them fail. Is failure sometimes the best thing for a student? Sometimes. Can failure sometimes be the best thing for you and for me? We don't want to agree with that, do we? We don't like to fail. But sometimes, could it be in our best interest? Today, I want to look and continue on in this uh, series with Peter's life. I hope you brought your Bible. We have a lot of verses to read this morning. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And before this, we have Peter's confession of Christ. We could spend time there, but we're not going to. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection and so on. Take up the cross and follow him. But then here in verse 28 it says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took, again, Peter, James, and John and went up the mountain to pray. Again, only these three. Could it be that Jesus knows that these three are going to also be the ones that are going to witness his anguish in Gethsemane? And he has chosen, with them, chosen them now to be with him on this mountain in preparation for that valley? And why did they go to the mountain to pray? Have you ever thought about that? We often think about the transfiguration and his glory and his majesty and, and the splendor and all of that. But what led them to the mountain to pray? Before we continue on, Desire of Ages helps us with that. Page 419 and 20, it says, The man of sorrows pours out his with strong crying and tears. I think he pours out his heart with strong crying and tears. He prays for strength to endure the test in behalf of humanity. He must himself gain a fresh hold of omnipotence, for only thus can he contemplate the future. Jesus is overwhelmed. And he pours out his heart longings for his disciples that in the hour of the power of darkness, their faith may not fail. Jesus is overwhelmed and he's worried about his disciples that they're not ready. And so he goes up to pray, yes, for himself, but he's also going to pray for the 12 that they won't be overcome by the power of darkness, that their faith may not fail. Continuing on in our story, verse 29, As he, Jesus, prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, the two men talking with him were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, And when they fully awoke, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Where are Peter, James, and John? Sleeping. Sleeping. Jesus is concerned. They're not concerned. Jesus is overwhelmed with the task before him. They're not overwhelmed. We've got this, Jesus. It'll be fine. Let's just rest. And here God the Father does something amazing. He lets humanity peek at his glory. And not only that, but Moses and Elijah get to spend some time with Jesus. Instead of choosing angels to come down to encourage Jesus, He chose two individuals who themselves had experienced trials on this earth. Isn't it true? Two people that could empathize with Jesus. I mean, think about that for a moment. What an incredible honor to be Moses or Elijah and minister to Jesus. In an hour when he is overwhelmed. He needs a fresh... uh, Filling, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, of the divine, of his plan, of his mission, of his purpose. And of course, we know Moses was a sign of victory over death for those who will come forth on resurrection morning. Elijah, a sign of those who will be translated without seeing death at Christ's return. Moses had pleaded for Israel as Christ is now pleading for his disciples and the human race. Elijah had known loneliness for three and a half years, and famine, and he bore the nation's hatred and woe. And I imagine both of them knew what it was like to feel very much alone. Moses, yes, surrounded by people, but very much alone in his mission. Elijah, alone by the brook. Elijah alone before the king. Elijah alone before the prophets of Baal. Elijah alone as he flees and is discouraged. But what is their conversation about? Salvation of lost humanity. Jesus concerned with the human race. Concerned with his disciples. And disciples... Hmm, unconcerned. But Peter will later write, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his glory. Could it be that not just Jesus, but God the Father knows that these three need an extra portion They need an extra experience to bring them through. And so I'm gonna allow them to catch a peek, a glimpse of Jesus in his full majesty. And so we pick up the story, verse 34. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful as they entered the cloud and a voice came down out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Would that be an experience you wouldn't easily forget? Would there be adrenaline pumping through your body after going through that? I think there certainly would be. And so, add that to the list of experiences that Peter has. And I don't think that one's by accident. Let's turn now to John chapter 13. I know we're skipping all kinds of things, and we could have turned this into a much longer series. But we're going to skip now to John chapter 13. This is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And you realize that as this is going on, the disciples are going to this, arguing over who's going to be the greatest, right? There's some contention, there's jealousy, there's strife, there's jockeying for position. Who will sit at Jesus' right and on his left? And there's no servant there to wash feet. Whose job was it now to take on this task? Any of the disciples could have taken it on. Any last one of them, but not one of the 12, not one would lower themselves enough to do the task. And Jesus, again, is overhearing all of this conversation. I mean, this is it. This is right here. We're almost at the the completion of his ministry. The cross is just literally days, if not almost hours away. And here, this group of 12 is arguing for position They're too proud, too arrogant to wash anybody's feet. How is this going to work? How are they going to make it through this testing time? They're not ready for the test. The final is almost here, and they're not ready. Desire of Ages 644 says this. How is Christ to bring these poor souls Where Satan would not gain over them a decided victory? How could he show that a mere profession of discipleship did not make them disciples? Or ensure them a place in his kingdom? How could he show that he is loving service, true humility, which constitutes real greatness... How was he to kindle to love in their hearts and enable them to comprehend what he longed to tell them? How? 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 My time is almost up. How am I going to do this? But look at these verses in John chapter 13, verse 3. He's going to model it. John chapter 13, verse three, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, that's his outer garment, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Here Jesus stoops to do what they should have done and it gets their attention he comes to Simon Peter in verse 6 and Peter said to him Lord are you washing my feet and Jesus says in verse 7 what am I doing What am I doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this? And Peter said to him, you shall what? Never wash my feet. You know, there's an element of pride there, isn't there? I got this. You wash my feet? No, 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 no. I mean, couldn't we say that the truest humility is to receive with a thankful heart any provision made on our behalf? That's essentially what's happening here, and that would be true humility, but, but Peter's saying, no, 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 no. You will never wash my feet, and Jesus has to respond, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He's saying, Peter, you don't get it. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. Doesn't our pride and our ego just get wedged in there, even in our religiosity of going to church, of going through the practices, of paying our tithes and our offerings, of whatever that we do. But Jesus says, no, you need to do this. And we say, no, 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 I'm above that. I don't need that. But he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Verse nine, And Simon Peter said to him, Lord... Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Does he get it? Yes, the act that Jesus plays opens the eyes of the disciples. And in that act, and it would take a while to wash 12 people's feet, they are ashamed. They're humiliated. Humility fills their hearts. They understand the unspoken rebuke, and they start to see themselves in altogether a new light. Isn't that what we need—to see ourselves in a new light? So they finish supper. Judas has identified that he will betray Christ. As they get up and leave, there's another interaction that involves Peter. I know there's so much here that we can't unpack. But I want to look at this interaction. And for this one, I like the account in Mark. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 14. This would be on a Thursday night. Somewhere between Thursday night and Friday morning, Jesus is arrested and tried. And by Friday morning... He's nailed to the cross. So we are just hours away here. It's coming down to the wire. Mark chapter 14 beginning verse 26 we read. And when they had sung a hymn they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's the last supper. And then Jesus said to them all of you. How many? All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, quoting Isaiah 53. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter speaks up, verse 29. Peter said to him, and here's Peter's confidence, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not. time of trouble's coming. When people will be caught unaware. The ten virgins, and they're sleeping. You know, Lord, even if all are asleep, I won't be sleeping. My eyes are open to the signs of the times. I've read the great controversies. I've been through Daniel and Revelation. I can parse the verses. I know it's coming down the pike. Even if all are asleep, I will not be asleep. I'll be awake. I'll never deny you. She said in verse thirty, "Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times." Does Peter hear it? Does he humble himself? Does he say, "Lord, really, me? Are you sure?" Lord, help me. I don't want to deny you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Does he hear it? He won't hear it? What does it say? Verse 31, but he spoke vehemently. Vehem-, oh, and that's not one of these words. Vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Yeah, 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 we're the same, we're the same. Wouldn't humble himself. Wouldn't wake up to his true condition. And I wonder what parallels there are for God's last day church. Peter was walking with Jesus. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. Peter is helping him with the miracles that Jesus is performing. Peter is casting out demons. Peter is part of the inner circle. He has plenty of one on one time with Jesus himself. But Jesus is telling him when the final test comes you'll deny me. No I won't. He won't even hear of it. What if Peter would have and I realize this verse wasn't written yet but what if he would have said something like this I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What if he recognized his weakness? What if he would have claimed this verse in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which of course wasn't written yet either, but what if this would have been his attitude? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Jesus, I need your strength, because I realize as a human being, I'm weak. And Paul later goes on, therefore I'm most I rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Lord, I need your power. I need confidence in your strength to get me through this trial, this time of testing. Lord, I don't want to be confident in self. I want to be confident in you and you alone. What if Peter would have taken that posture? I believe the whole rest of the story would be very different. I believe the Garden of Gethsemane would have been very different. I believe he would have stayed up and awake and prayed. Why? Because Jesus said this very night, Lord, help me. Desire of Ages 673 says this When Peter said he would follow his Lord to prison and to death, he meant it, every word of it. So you can't say he wasn't sincere. But what does it say? He didn't know himself. Hidden in his heart were elements of evil that circumstances would fan into life. Do you know yourself? Do I know myself? I mean, we can say all kinds of things, and we can mean it. Our heart can be in it. But there's only one that can search our hearts and our minds and know what character defect still lies within, what elements of evil are still being cherished, that at that critical moment, when the fan is, when the, the flame is fanned, if you will, they'll come to life. Christ's solemn warning was a call to heart searching. Peter needed to distrust himself and to have a deeper faith in Christ. What if he would have said the same thing he said on the Sea of Galilee Lord, save me or I perish? Should I say it again? Lord, save me or I perish. We're trying to preach to Siri too. You've been there. I believe if he would have said that, he would have been kept. But rather, Peter felt that he was distrusted. He thought it was cruel. In fact, he was offended. Let's go on. Unless he was made conscious of his danger, these would prove his eternal ruin. The Savior saw in him self love and assurance that would overbear even his love for Christ. Christ's solemn warning was a call to heart searching. Peter needed to distrust himself and to have a deeper faith in Christ. When on the Sea of Galilee he was about to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. So now, if he cried to Jesus, save me from myself, he would have been kept. But Peter felt that he was distrusted, and he thought it cruel, and he was already offended, and he became more persistent in what? His self-confidence. Again, confidence isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if it's all self-confidence, May the Lord help us to have confidence in God. May the Lord help us to be confident in who we are in Jesus Christ by his grace. Because our promises are like ropes of sand, are they not? In Luke's account of this same set of verses, Luke 22, verse 31, he says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Jesus is praying for him at the transfiguration. Jesus is saying, I've prayed for you here at this moment. And we're gonna see he prays for Peter in the garden of Gethsemane. Friends, Jesus is praying for you and me by name. As the loving redeemer of mankind. And he knows where our weak spots are and he's doing everything he can to prepare us for the final test. And what's our attitude? You ever tried teaching a student that doesn't want to learn? Good luck with that. Have you ever had your younger kids like to say things like, I know? And everything that you say is followed by, I know? And you as a parent are thinking, no, you don't know. That's why I'm telling you. What attitude do we approach the trials of life? What attitude do we approach scripture and spirit prophecy? What attitude do we bring to the table? Is it an I know attitude? Or is it a humble attitude saying, Lord, yes, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord. Stand in need of prayer. Pray for me, Lord. I want to, to make it through by your grace. Show me, teach me. Convert me. Turn, if you will, to John. We're still following this same story, but we're taking it from different different accounts. This is also right after (coughs) the Last Supper. They're outside. John doesn't mention the part about Peter. But I believe it's right there at the same time. John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless what? It abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to go through. If it's going to be based on I'm going to, no, you're not. You abide in the vine. And here Jesus, again, desperately trying to teach the disciples in Peter. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do how much? We still like to read it different. I can only do some. I can only do a little bit or, or a lot of bit or whatever bit. But I'm going to do something. But the verse says you can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Are you going to stand at the end apart from Jesus? Are you going to make it through Jacob's time of trouble apart from Jesus? Verse 7 If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is. Glorified. Abide in me. And then we're going to turn back to Matthew. I told you we had a lot of verses today. Matthew chapter 26. We're coming here to the close. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. You know where the upper room where they think it was. It's just down a little hill. It's a pretty easy walk. Jesus has a lot of teaching between here and there from all the accounts that we have and then they get into this little garden grove that's just barely outside the city. But if you're on the rooftop of where they had the last supper, you can very easily see down the garden of Gethsemane. You sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him again Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who we know to be James and John, and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He's feeling that separation from his heavenly father. And he asked these three, he asked Peter, can you stay and watch with me? And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's agonizing with God, he needs a little support. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? The one that's so confident, I'll never deny you. And he tells Peter, verse 41, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, I know what's right around the corner for you. I know you need to be watching. I know you need to be praying. I know you need to be awake. Remnant church on the knife edge of eternity, I know you need to be awake, but you're asleep. I am asleep. the second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup not pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. Desire of Ages, 713 and onward, it says, It was in sleeping when Jesus bade him watch and pray that Peter had prepared the way for his great sin. All the disciples, by sleeping in the critical hour, sustain a great loss. What great loss are you and I preparing for? Because we can't stay awake either. The alarm clock goes off, it's too early. I've got to have another 30 minutes of sleep. I've got to have another hour of sleep. And Jesus says, no, you've got to have that hour. I know what's happening today. Had those hours in the garden been spent in watching and prayer, Peter would not have been left to depend upon his own feeble strength. I don't care how much you work out, you have feeble strength. And it says he would not have denied his Lord. I think in this verse, John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me. This is a peek into what Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17, is it not? And here Jesus is praying for himself, but he's also praying for the disciples, and he's praying also for all who will believe. That's you and me. He's praying, actively praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with everything that's about to come upon him. He's still thinking of the disciples and he's thinking of me. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me. In reference to the disciples, again, keep them from the evil one is what he prays. And he prays for all believers. And so he goes a third time to pray. He comes back again, finds them sleeping. And then verse 46, he says, Rise, let us go, be going, see my betrayers at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then he came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, we know in John chapter 18, this is talking about Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Here comes the confidence again, but it's misdirected. Is it confidence in what God's going to do, or is it confidence in what Peter's going to do? I've got this, but Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And here's the reality check. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? We've seen it before. We saw the angels annihilate 185,000 of the Assyrians. Could they not do this? Of course they could. Peter, put your sword away. And then, of course, they're trying to seize him with, like a robber with swords and clubs. But Jesus allows it to happen, verse 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then it says at the end of verse 56, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So it's still that evening slash morning. They take Jesus off to be tried at night in a very illegal way. They're self-condemning themselves, if you will. They're accusing him of blasphemy. They're speaking in his face. They're beating him. They're striking him. They're saying, prophesy, who struck you? And even though they all fled, it tells us in verse 69... Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard. Why is Peter there? He's curious, what's gonna happen? How's this gonna go? And so he's there, but he's assuming the guise of not a disciple, Spirit Prophecy tells us John is there too and John is fine being a disciple of Jesus and he's just taking in. He's not trying to hide or disguise himself but Peter, on the other hand, is trying to disguise himself. He's trying to get in with the crowd that took Jesus and he's just trying to mingle with them and they're the ones that called Peter out. In fact, we could say Jesus, excuse me, Peter denies Jesus before any words escape his lips. Now Peter was outside the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're saying. But when he had gone out of the gate, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But then he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them for your speech betrays you. And then he began to curse and swear saying, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so it says, he went out and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine? Jesus has done everything in his power to equip you, to train you, if you will, to disciple you, to, to, to pray for you, to intercede for you. And even said very specifically and in a straightforward fashion, tonight, Peter. And he won't hear of it. And at the critical moment, he sleeps yet again. And now it happens exactly as Jesus said it would happen. And he's shattered. He's humiliated. He can't believe he has done what he has said so vehemently that he wouldn't do. Desire of Ages, 7, 12, and 13 says, while the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looks full upon his poor disciple. In the midst of that moment Jesus turns and looks at Peter. At the same time Peter's eyes were drawn to his master and in that gentle countenance he read deep pity and sorrow. But there was no anger there. Isn't that amazing? Mess up of all mess ups by not an outsider but an insider, someone close. And Jesus knew it all along. And their eyes lock in that moment. And he doesn't see anger, resentment. There's not, I told you so. It's pity and sorrow and not a hint of anger. The sight of that pale, suffering face describing Jesus, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness, pierced his heart like an arrow. And so he flees from that spot, and it tells us, on the very spot where Jesus had poured out his soul in agony to his father, Peter fell upon his face and wished that he might die. He returns to the garden. He returns to the very place, the very rock, the very earth that Jesus had clawed at with his own fingernails, perhaps even bits of blood on the rock. And he wished it was over. Could it be on the knife edge of eternity? I'm asleep. I'm overconfident. Thinking because I've been with Jesus, I've ministered with Jesus, that I've served with Him, I've been involved in Bible studies and evangelism, I've paid a faithful tithe. Could it be that I'm not prepared to meet the final crisis? That I'm not able to meet the final test? I think of Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. And then lead me to the way everlasting. Isn't that a humble prayer? Lord, even if all desert you, I will never desert you. The inverse, Lord, search my heart. With humility, show me all the wickedness in my heart. Reveal it to me, purge it from me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I will follow you. I will keep my eyes on you. But you have to be leading. And when you point out another thing in my heart, Lord, by your grace, help me to pluck it out. Help me to put it far away. If Peter would have prayed this prayer, if we will pray this prayer, if I will pray this prayer, the outcome will be very different. Simon, Simon. Put your name in there. David, David. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you, David, that your faith should not fail. This is not the end of the story of Peter. Can't wait to share with you next week. You already know what's coming next week. But in this moment today, I want to make an appeal to anybody that might just be a little bit overly confident in themselves, in their Bible reading, in their knowledge, in their understanding, in their pedigree, in their whatever. Maybe there's somebody here that simply wants to say, Lord, I receive it. Call me Peter. But I see myself in him all too much. But Lord, I don't want to just stand there and say, I know. I want to say, Lord, help me. Search my heart. Show me specifically the things that need to weed out, and then give me the power, by your grace, to weed them out. So that when I meet whatever the final test is whether it's tomorrow or whether it's the end time scenario that I will be faithful to you. Dear Heavenly Father as we have contemplated some of the the pieces of Peter's experience as he walked with you Lord forgive us for the times that we have been too much like Peter. For times that we have spoken without thinking. For times that we have Been offended rather than humbled for the times that we have not listened to your counsel but rather pushed it aside for the times that we've fallen asleep when we should have been awake. Lord, at the knife edge of eternity, at the critical moment, may we watch and pray. And by your grace, by your power, by nothing else but by the confidence of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for me. May we follow you today and today and today until you come is our prayer in Jesus name. Amen.